This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Dire Wolf Friends, winter has come. We're keenly aware of that today as we sit watching the snow pile up outside of our window. And actually, winter was coming for a long time this year. At least for those of us who live in Chicago. Oh sure, it's been cold and it's been windy, but that's to be expected. This is the Windy City, after all. Well, actually, did you know that Chicago's nickname, the Windy City, has nothing to do with the gusty winds blowing from Lake Michigan? Well, guess what? That correction? That's actually wrong. See, it's a popular legend here in Chicago that the wind in the Windy City is actually a reference to the breath of loquacious politicians. What happened was this. In 1871, Chicago caught fire. All of it. Well, a lot of it. Roughly three square miles of the city were burned to the ground in a massive fire. Initially, because the fire appeared to initiate in the O'Leary farm, the fire was blamed on a cow knocking over a lantern. But other theories suggest careless gamblers or even meteors are to blame. The meteor theory is supported by the fact that eyewitnesses report seeing balls of fire raining from the sky, and because several other Midwest cities also mysteriously caught fire at the same time. Regardless, the fire spread rapidly due to dry weather, wind, and the fact that most of Chicago at the time was basically made out of kindling. After the disaster, Joseph Medill was elected mayor, though with all the voting records destroyed in the fire, his victory has been questioned. And as the new mayor, Medill instituted a massive rebuilding campaign. With the center of the city leveled, Chicago presented a unique opportunity to architects of the day. The entire city center could be rebuilt according to a plan and according to modern fireproofing techniques. Well, modern for the time. Great architects and city planners were drawn to the city, including William LeBaron Genet who studied modern building techniques that used iron and steel. He even shared classes with Gustav Eiffel, who designed the Eiffel Tower. Today, Genet is considered the father of the modern skyscraper, and the utilitarian style that he developed alongside other Chicago architects is known as the Chicago School of Modernism. By the 1890s, Chicago's downtown had been rebuilt and its economy was booming. And Chicago's political leaders wanted to show off how the city had not merely been rebuilt, but how it had become a marvel of modern architecture and urban planning. And the perfect opportunity showed up in the form of the 1893 World's Fair. Now, a World's Fair was a tradition that had begun in Paris as the French Industrial Exposition of 1844. But the idea really caught on with the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations in Hyde Park, London in 1851. That mouthful was shortened to the World Expo. Thereafter, every few years, World Expos and World Fairs were hosted by various cities and used to show off achievements in science, technology, and industry to the masses. And in 1893, the World's Fair was to be hosted in the United States and Congress had to choose a host city. According to the story, Chicago's representatives talked for so long about the virtues of Chicago that representatives from other cities, like New York, barely had any time to present their own cases. And so Chicago was selected as the site for the 1893 World's Fair. 
the New York Times ran a headline blasting the windbag politicians from Chicago for dominating the hearings. And that is when Chicago became known as the Windy City. Except, in 1876, the Cincinnati Enquirer ran a headline that read, That Windy City, and described freak windstorms that struck Chicago the evening before. And the Louisville Courier-Journal used the same nickname in 1886 to describe the winter winds blowing in from Lake Michigan. So the windbag politician thing? That's just a lot of hot air. But we digress. The point is that six days before the vernal equinox officially ends the winter season, we've finally gotten a pretty substantial snowfall. Winter, in fact, has come. And if you're a fan of the Game of Thrones, either the doorstopper novels by George R.R. R. Martin or the HBO cable television show based on the books, you're familiar with Waiting for Winter. And for other things. Winter is coming is the motto of one of the great noble houses of the fictional land of Westeros, House Stark. House Stark rules the northernmost lands in Westeros. And when winter comes, it hits those lands the hardest. The problem is that Westeros has some very odd seasons, and they tend to turn unpredictably. How Stark's pessimistic motto reminds them of the need to be prepared for sudden turns of fortune, and to remain ever vigilant. In fact, Martin has confirmed that the slogan has many meanings. He says that it serves as a warning that dark turns will always occur in life, and he also confirmed it as a reference to the opening line of Shakespeare's play Richard III where the titular character warns that now is the winter of our discontent. And the show and the novels, which have diverged gradually over the years, are certainly full of dark turns and disasters. But Game of Thrones fans got used to waiting for winter. Just like they got used to waiting for the next book in the series. Now, the idea of unpredictable seasons seems a bit odd given that we noted that winter officially ends in six days. Well, six days from the day of writing. But, as the sudden snowstorms blasting the Midwestern and Northeastern United States in mid-March have demonstrated, our seasons are pretty darned unpredictable too. At least the weather is. The calendar isn't. Winter runs every year from the winter solstice to the vernal equinox. That's approximately December 20th to March 20th. And those dates have nothing to do with the weather. They have everything to do with the fact that the Earth is tilted. As you know, the planet Earth is a giant sphere, no matter what celebrities have told you. And it spins through space like a top, spinning around once every 24 hours. And as it spins, it goes round and round the Sun, taking about 365 days to get all the way around. But nothing in this system is actually perfect. First of all, the Earth isn't a perfect sphere. It's bulgy around the middle and technically what is called an oblate spheroid. And the time it takes to rotate around its axis isn't exactly 24 hours, 0 minutes, 0 seconds. Nor is the time it takes to revolve around the Sun exactly 365 days and no hours. And the path it traces around the Sun isn't precisely a circle either. It's an ellipse, which is kind of a mathematically specific type of oval. And the sun isn't at the center. So sometimes the Earth is closer to the sun, sometimes further. At its closest point, 
the Earth is about 93 million miles from the Sun. At its furthest, it's about 96 million miles. And you might think that that is what brings about the seasons. Except it isn't. Here's a fun fact. When it is winter in the Northern Hemisphere, the Earth is as close to the Sun as it can get. In midsummer, it's as far from the Sun as it can be. The reason for the seasons is axial tilt. See, in addition to being bulgy and imprecise and following a weird oval path, the Earth doesn't spin straight up and down like a top. It's tilted, at least as compared to the path it takes through space. It is tilted by 23.5 degrees, and when it is summer in the Northern Hemisphere, that's because the North Pole is tilted toward the Sun. In winter in the Northern Hemisphere, the North Pole is tilted away from the Sun. That, by the way, is why the tropical regions, the areas of the Earth north and south of the equator, don't really have much seasonal variation. And that is also why the tropical regions are the regions between 23.5 degrees north latitude and 23.5 degrees south latitude. Those imaginary lines, by the way, are called the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Those lines are the furthest lines north and south at which the sun's path pretty much stays directly overhead all the time. Now, because of all this tilting, the days in the northern and southern hemispheres vary in length. For example, when the North Pole is pointed directly toward the sun on around June 20th, the northern hemisphere spends more time in daylight than darkness. Thus, that day is named the June solstice, and it is the day of the year with the most daylight hours. At the North Pole, the sun actually never sets for the entire summer. On the other side of the year, on December 20th, in the northern hemisphere, we have the winter solstice. On that day, we have the fewest hours of daylight of any day in the northern hemisphere. In addition, because we're pointed away from the sun, the sunlight doesn't impact the earth directly, so we get less heat and light. And that is why winter happens. By the way, the word solstice comes from the Latin name for the sun, sol, and the word sistere, which means to come to stop. It literally means when the sun seems to stand still. Now, partway between the solstices, we reach a point where the axis is tilted off to the side instead of directly toward or away from the sun. And that means that in both the northern and southern hemisphere, and in fact everywhere on Earth, we get equal hours of daylight and darkness. These are called the equinoxes, from the Latin words equa, which means equal, and nox, which means night. The vernal equinox is the one in the spring, and the autumnal equinox is the one in the fall. But again, we digress. Because the whole reflection on Game of Thrones in winter happened because after last episode's discussion about rats, we started thinking about other common beasts in Dungeons and Dragons. And that got us thinking about wolves. And when it comes to fantasy, Dungeons and Dragons, and Game of Thrones, when we talk about wolves, we mean dire wolves. See, in Game of Thrones, there are these massive wolves that live far to the north called dire wolves. In fact, in most regions in Westeros, people think they're a myth because they haven't been seen in hundreds of years. They're as big as horses, powerful and vicious, but they are also fiercely loyal and can be domesticated. They're also intelligent enough to recognize the friends of their masters and their foes. 
but things got a little confused in D&D. Back in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition, there appeared statistics for normal wolves along with statistics for dire wolves. But the dire wolves had a parenthetical nickname, the Warg. Text indicated that wargs were particularly intelligent and evil-natured dire wolves. And the same held true in 2nd edition. But in 3rd edition, a new concept was introduced to the game, a way of modifying monsters called the Template. The Template showcased the new systematic approach to monster building that 3rd edition's streamlined universal rule set entailed. It was a list of modifications that could be made to an existing monster, and templates became so popular, and so many were published, that they became a running joke among game masters because they could be ridiculously over-applied, allowing you to create the ghost of a lycanthropic half-demon, half-dragon, half-ling. But we're concerned with the Dire template. Dire was a template you could use to turn a normal beast like a wolf or a rat or a bear or a tiger into a larger, more powerful version known as a dire wolf or dire rat, or you get the picture. And with dire wolves now being a product of a template and part of a class of dire animals, wargs got separated out. Now, what's very interesting is that dire wolves and wargs have two different origins one real and one mythical. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings books, you're probably familiar with wargs as particularly powerful, intelligent, and evil wolves that were bred by Morgoth in the earliest ages of Middle-earth. Morgoth, if you're not aware, is basically the Middle-earthian Satan. By the time of the Lord of the Rings, wargs had forged an alliance with goblins and they shared a hatred of men and dwarves. But wargs actually appear in an even earlier fantasy. Warg is the transliteration of the Norse word Varger. And that means it's time to briefly pay Norse mythology a visit. In Norse mythology, wargs were specific wolves. Three wolves, specifically. The wargs were Fenrir and his sons Skjol and Hati. Now, Fenrir is the child of Loki. Loki is a weird figure in Norse mythology, the child of a giant and an unknown being who may have been a giant or a demigoddess. He is a malicious and scheming cowardly figure who cares only for his own pleasure and survival. He rails against the social and natural laws and is extremely chaotic. Thus, he's considered a trickster god. Loki also had a lot of sex, and that left him with several kids. Apart from Hel, goddess of the underworld, Loki fathered two important creatures. First, there was the great serpent Jormungand, and second, there was the super wolf Fenrir. Loki is also the mother of Odin's horse. Yes, the, the mother, but that's another story. Jormungand, also called the Midgard Serpent, was a serpent so large it could encircle the world and it spent most of its time chewing on the roots of Yggdrasil, waiting for the world to end. Meanwhile, Fenrir spent his time tied up by the gods. See, the gods knew that someday they would fall. The Twilight of the Gods, their fall, was a prophesized event called Ragnarok. And Ragnarok would kick off when the Midgard Serpent killed Thor, and Fenrir killed Odin. And the gods spent a lot of time trying to prevent this Ragnarok thing. 
Thor once went out to hunt for the Midgard Serpent and pick a fight with it, on the assumption that it couldn't kill him if he killed it first. Fortunately, a wise giant stopped Thor, because Thor wasn't very bright. Meanwhile, the gods adopted Fenrir and tried to keep him under control. But the wolf grew large and powerful, so Odin had the dwarves forge the strongest chain ever built. The gods then convinced Fenrir to let them chain him up as a test of his strength. Fenrir wanted to prove his strength, but he was a bit suspicious. He agreed to play only if one of the gods would put their hand in Fenrir's mouth. And one god, Tyr, was brave enough to do that. And when the chain was closed and Fenrir couldn't break free, he bit Tyr's hand off. By the way, the story ends with Fenrir breaking free and devouring half the world during Ragnarok, including Odin himself. He also swallows the sun and devours the moon. Though other stories claim that it was his children that did that, Skjol and Hati. So, there was either one warg, Fenrir, or three altogether. That covers the mythical origin of the wargs. Now for the real origin of direwolves. Now, you probably know that wolves are actual real animals. The most common species of wolf on Earth today is the gray wolf, or Canis lupus. Which, by the way, is why lupine means wolf-like, and why Remus Lupin, in Harry Potter, was destined to be a werewolf, fooling no one. With a last name like Lupin, his parents should not have doubled down and given him the first name of a mythical child of Rome, who was abandoned and raised by wolves. But that aside, way, way back in the Cretaceous period, 65 million years ago, when the last dinosaurs were dying off, there lived an animal called a myocid. It started as an insectivore, a bug eater, but when dinosaurs died off and mammals began to fill more ecological niches, myocids gave rise to the first canids, the precursors to modern dogs, wolves, and foxes. The Cynodictus, or Dawn Wolf, was a tree-dwelling, elongated, fox-like creature. Now, there's a lot of debate about what happened next. But the canids grew and became more powerful until around 60 million years ago, the Grey Wolf and the Red Wolf appeared. Grey Wolves and Red Wolves still exist today. Grey Wolves live throughout Europe, North America, and Canada. And Red Wolves live in southeastern North America, or it is also called the Florida Wolf or the Mississippi Wolf. And of course, a slew of other canines exist as well, including foxes, coyotes, and hyenas. And six million years ago, humanity learned how to domesticate gray wolves. And that's where the story of the evolution of dogs begins. But that's a story for another time. However, there was another cousin to the gray wolf that didn't quite survive to the present day. In 1854, in Indiana, a wolf jawbone was discovered that didn't quite match the wolves of the day. Thereafter, numerous fossilized remains of similar wolves were discovered across North America, particularly in the La Brea tar pits. The tar pits are exactly what they sound like, open natural pits filled with natural asphalt. And they are a paleontological dream because they've been swallowing animals and preserving them for millions of years. It should be noted 
that Brea is the Spanish word for tar or asphalt. So the name of the La Brea Tar Pits translates to the Tar Tar Pits. It's the paleontology equivalent of saying ATM machine and pin number. It drives us crazy. As for the dire wolves themselves, they were just slightly bigger, slightly more powerful cousins to gray wolves. And considering they lived in the same era as woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers, they are far more boring than they have any right to be. And they didn't grow to the size of a horse. The largest were about five feet long. What is interesting is why there are no more dire wolves around. See, the dire wolf survived for a hundred thousand years or more, and then suddenly, they were gone. And not just them. The period in history during which the dire wolves and the mammoths and the saber-toothed tigers lived was called the Pleistocene Era. And it was the era of megafauna, the era of giant animals. You had the giant woolly rhinoceros, the massive moose-like megaloceros, the massive sloth-like megatherum, giant bears, giant panthers. The list goes on and on. And then suddenly, about 10,000 years ago, all the giant animals went extinct. Two-thirds of all species on Earth that weighed more than 80 pounds or so vanished, gone forever. And no one is entirely sure why. This event, called the Pleistocene Extinction Event, is a huge mystery. Various explanations have been proposed but two went over the others. The first has to do with climate change. See, the Earth goes through these cycles, during which ice spreads across its surface from the poles and then retreats. These periods, called glacial periods, seem to happen every 40 to 100,000 years. The last glacial period ended about 10,000 years ago, right around the time that all of those megafauna went extinct. Currently, we are in what is called an interglacial period, where the Earth warms and most of the continental ice vanishes. Today we have just two major continental ice sheets, in Greenland and Antarctica. Anyway, the theory goes that as the climate changed and the glacial ice retreated, the largest creatures that had evolved to maintain their body temperatures could no longer survive. In addition, Food supplies changed as different species of plants evolved. For example, massive swaths of grassland became birch forests. For that matter, we also know from the fossil record that there was a period of massive forest fires that followed the growth of new forests, and that might have had an additional impact on those species. Another theory is that woolly mammoths were overhunted by the evolving humans and eventually went extinct. Without the mammoths, the largest herbivores, to control the growth of plants, the grasslands gave way to other plants. Animals that relied on the grasslands to survive were unable to find food and diet out. And so too did the predators that survived by hunting them. Then came the rise of the birch forests and resultant periods of forest fires. There are inconsistencies with both theories involving the timing of specific extinctions and the survival of certain creatures while others died out. There's no definitive single answer, and presumably, a combination of factors were to blame for the mass megafauna extinctions. 
But one thing remains clear from the story of the extinction of the direwolves as the last ice age ended. One thing that gives us hope as we look out over the piling snow outside the window. Winter may be here, but summer is coming. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.